0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March seventeenth, two thousand twenty-two. I'm Caleb Brown. It's hard to overstate the role of NATO in the current assault from Russia on Ukraine. Cato's Ted Galen Carpenter and Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, discuss NATO's role in setting the stage for war in Ukraine today. How has NATO affected European? defenses among the member nations uh, uh, in NATO. Stephen, I'll start with you.
1: It's affected it in different ways, particularly because the United States has always been the leading security provider within NATO and in fact has insisted on doing so. So as we exit the Cold War, um, the idea is that Europe will be whole and free. Uh, European defense spending drops Quite sensibly. But the United States, rather than taking that opportunity to pull back uh, or building a kind of pan European security organization that would include Russia, instead opts to remain the dominant security provider in Europe and, in fact, uh, to support uh, successive waves of NATO enlargement. What this does, it gives a number of European states within NATO, little incentive to provide for their own defense, uh, because it's the United States that would realistically uh, be the leading actor in any, for a long time, unlikely contingency that uh, there would in fact be a conflict between NATO and Russia. So a lot of the debate we've heard in, in recent uh, weeks has focused on this question of the extent to which the possibility of nato membership for ukraine has provoked russia i think an underappreciated aspect uh, of the uh, nato question though is also why is it that europe now has to hurriedly do more on defense more than three decades after the end of the cold war it had the united states uh taken a lower military profile for a long time. It may well be that Russia would still be the aggressive Russia that we see. That's possible. Uh, But Europe might have been able to handle this problem more or less on its own.
2: Ted? The United States made the fateful decision instead of uh, turning security matters in Europe over to the Europeans or seeking to promote a pan-European New security apparatus to remodel and expand a Cold War alliance with uh, an implicit anti Russia focus. And that has led to a great deal of trouble. It did two things it encouraged perpetual uh, security free riding by the uh, traditional. Allies within NATO, and it also uh, led to expectations on the part of Central and East European countries that they would become members of NATO. Although it was quite clear that Russia would never have that option, so what it ended up doing was gradually moving the uh, the. Dividing line in Europe, eastward. That was the the principal effect. Instead of having NATO within its traditional territory, NATO uh, acquired a, a much larger jurisdiction, but again, one with an implicit anti-Russia focus, and that was bound to lead to trouble uh, sooner or later. I don't think any major power. Is willing to tolerate having the leading power in the international system move the most powerful military alliance in history right up to the borders of that uh, that second great power, and yet we expected Russia to accept that passively. We now know uh, quite clearly that uh, the Russian government was not prepared to tolerate that indefinitely.
0: How has NATO communicated? Uh, with Ukraine, with respect to NATO membership. There appeared to have been this hope that uh, was hanging out there for a long time, that Ukraine would at some point be admitted to NATO and uh, in a sense allow that country to uh, breathe a sigh of relief, uh, even if uh, you two gentlemen understand that uh, Ukraine's membership in NATO may have just added additional risk to uh, the United States engaging in sort of a tripwire scenario.
2: I would say that the United States held out a NATO membership to Ukraine in much the same way that a uh, wagon driver holds out the carrot in front of the donkey's nose. Uh, This was to gain more and more cooperation from Ukraine. And if you look at U.S. actions, um, there were a good many moves That amounted to um, treating Ukraine like a NATO member, even if it did not have formal membership. So we had uh, more and more arms sales to give. Um, We had joint U.S.-Ukrainian military exercises uh, Mm -hmm. under uh, pressure from the United States, primarily. Uh, NATO even conducted joint military exercises with Ukraine. So looking at that from Moscow's perspective, Ukraine began to look very much like a forward staging area for NATO military power, even if no formal membership invitation was ever extended. Stephen?
1: It is somewhat difficult to explain why the United States became interested in dangling the prospect of NATO membership for Ukraine. I think there were plenty of um, American policymakers and diplomats who had supported prior rounds of NATO enlargement in the 1990s and the early aughts uh, who didn't think that publicly talking about the prospect of membership for Ukraine was a good idea because they understood that A position almost uniformly held by Russian elites was that Ukraine had uh, special importance to Russia as a very long border with Russia, and uh, it would cross a red line for Russia uh, to make Ukraine a member of NATO. But what happened is that the uh, George W. Bush administration uh, pushed this issue in 2008 Uh, Onto the other NATO allies, but with support of uh, the recently added Eastern uh, countries in NATO. So I think, to my mind, this was uh, one of uh, maybe George W. Bush's third big mistake. Iraq staying on in Afghanistan to do nation building after the completion of the legitimate goal, and the Bucharest summit, in which, because George W. Bush pushed for it, Uh, twisting the arms of the French and the Germans, uh, NATO declared that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO while also declining to give Ukraine or Georgia what's called a membership action plan, which is part of the formal process uh, to put those countries on a path uh, to becoming NATO members. So it was pretty apparent at the time and it was observed at the time by a range of people including supporters of NATO enlargement to date, who said, this makes no sense. This kind of action uh, would be provocative to Russia, but also wouldn't provide anything for the defense of Ukraine. Now, events have taken uh, kind of complex turns ever since that 2008 declaration. For some time, Ukraine itself stopped seeking NATO membership uh, since the events of 20. 14, including Russia's uh, annexation of Crimea and its support for the separatist uh, uprisings in eastern Ukraine, uh, Ukraine then became, understandably, more interested in in NATO membership. But as uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, has has just said, I think earlier today, uh, it's apparent it's become very clear to Ukraine itself that the open door isn't worth much. Ukraine wants to know, can it actually walk through the door and get a guarantee of its security uh, from from NATO? And the obvious answer is, no, it can't.
0: Let's move on to this. For those of us who are looking for silver linings in all of this, uh, perhaps these events in Ukraine, uh, as devastating and awful as they are, have awakened Europe to the need to spend more a relatively larger share than they have been spending on their own defense. Uh, so what what have NATO member nations been spending with respect to their own defense? What has the U.S. been spending for their defense, just as a, as a rough matter? And where should those countries be with respect to defending themselves? It seems that Russia, uh, despite its nuclear arsenal, doesn't have a lot when it comes to Conventional forces
2: it appears that the major European powers, especially Germany, may now be much more serious about uh, substantive defense efforts than they were before. But I hesitate to get very excited about this because we have heard promises from the European members of NATO before about increasing military spending taking security issues more seriously after all the alliance pledged a minimum of 2% of gross domestic product being spent on on defense and most of the nato members have never uh come terribly close to that germany especially i believe the expenditures to this point were like 1.3% uh berlin kept postponing the target date for reaching the 2%. It went at one point from 2024 to 2031. So it remains to be seen whether this incident really galvanizes the key NATO members, and I'm talking about France, Germany, Britain, Italy, Spain, Turkey, a few others, into really increasing spending levels. Uh, whether that's a good thing or not, or whether that will uh, ultimately increase tensions in Europe, also would remain to be seen. The one thing that I think is still a lesson that U.S. policymakers have to learn is that Washington's going to have to relinquish some dominance. Um, back in the late 1990s, key European countries, led not surprisingly by France, talked about a Europeans' Uh, only defense uh, structure with uh, the European Union having its own military. The U.S. reacted to that like a scalded cat. Uh, John Bolton, in uh, one famous comment, said that an independent European military would be a dagger pointed at the heart of NATO. It meant the end of total U.S. domination of NATO. And that was regarded as a very bad thing. Well, if we want the Europeans to do more uh, for their own defense, um, U.S. leaders, I think, have to recognize that the Europeans are going to want to have more input, more authority about defense policy and not let Washington run everything with them just re- signing on, however reluctantly uh,
1: at times. I might be ever so slightly more optimistic about the potential of this moment than ted is um i do fear that after a brief european awakening in which uh shocking things have happened suddenly the german chancellor schultz says germany will spend two percent more than two percent in fact on defense at least uh for the next few years uh Perpetually neutral states like Sweden and Switzerland have gotten into the fray to assist Ukraine with arms uh, and to participate in sanctions against Russia. I think these are positive developments. Um, But I very much fear that um, both Europe and the United States will revert to old ways, with the United States taking the lead in European defense and Europeans realizing that though they may do a bit more in defense, which actually uh many European states have been doing since 2014 in reaction to Russia's aggression then, that they don't need to do all that much more. Uh, and after all, why would they if the United States is in fact there for them? But I think this story could go differently. Uh, it's not just Europe that's now experiencing a reckoning with uh, the vulnerability of Eastern Europe to Russia and a reckoning about its own responsibilities. It's also the United States. The United States, for better or worse, has uh, clearly uh, committed to counterbalance China in the Indo-Pacific. It's clear that China takes priority, if push comes to shove, over Russia for the United States. And I think that that is a, a rational view. Now, I think many in the administration uh, and the wider foreign policy community have real doubts about whether the United States, in fact, is capable uh, of uh, deterring China and Russia simultaneously as the leading actor in both theaters uh, and will have the political will over the medium to long term to do that. And I also think that Europeans observe that partly because uh, of the experience of the Trump administration and the prospect, uh, that Trump himself or another, uh, figure like him, uh, could come back into the white house. So we are seeing that for the first time, the United States has been more encouraging of Europe building its own defense capabilities within the EU, as opposed to the U S led NATO.
0: The United States loves to extend, uh, less than totally clear security guarantees to countries around the world. And I feel like it would behoove Europe to view U.S. security guarantees today through NATO as less than 100% secure. So, uh, you know, to the extent that a U.S. administration is very interested in avoiding, it, for example, a nuclear exchange uh what would the right thinking us policy be and what do you expect to be the european response to it
2: the united states has gotten itself into a, a bind by uh extending security guarantees in the some, same way that uh people in some cases acquire facebook friends and with about as uh, much discrimination and uh and uh Caution. Um, Washington has been very loose with vague promises or implied promises of security backing. I would argue that George W. Bush's administration led Georgia down the primrose path, leading the Georgian government to believe that the United States and NATO Had that country's back in a confrontation with Russia. Uh, When Russia used military force against Georgia in 2008, it became very, very clear that the United States was not prepared militarily to back Georgia. Now, one would have thought that uh, subsequent US policymakers would have been much more cautious about creating a similar impression with Ukraine. But in fact, u s leaders uh, also led give to believe that Washington at, at a minimum and NATO as an institution had Ukraine's back if there was a confrontation with Russia. Well, what we find is that to the extent the uh, the West had Ukraine's back, it consisted of being willing to impose nasty economic sanctions against Russia and ship weapons. Two Ukrainian fighters, which rather implies a strategy of fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. Uh, that's not necessarily uh, in the interests of Ukraine as a country, and it's certainly not in the best interests of the Ukrainian people. So Washington needs to be much, much more selective and explicit in se- extending security guarantees. A place where this could get us into trouble uh, as well is Taiwan. Uh, the uh security backing for that country remains rather vague. And uh I can see where Beijing may be trying to discern just what is the U.S. commitment. Would the U.S. be willing to go to war to defend Taiwan? Yes or no? And frankly, if Washington's not willing to do that, then the any kind of security backing for Taiwan, for Ukraine, for any other entity is highly conditional and limited. And yet, I don't think many of those governments understand that.
1: I think the Biden administration has a realistic opportunity in the coming weeks, months, and years, if it wants to take it, to move Europe toward a European-led defense. I think that is now politically possible in a much more immediate way than it's been for decades, basically throughout my adult lifetime. Uh, But what I think it would require would be the administration no longer trying to reassure somewhat skeptical Europeans that the United States for the foreseeable future will actually be there and be on the front lines in a potential great power war With Russia, but rather, frankly, admit what I think everybody knows: it's not clear that the United States will, in fact, have the capability or the political will to be there. And so, it would be wise on both sides of the Atlantic uh, to move the United States to a supporting role in NATO and have the United the Europeans uh, take the lead in the defense of Europe. Uh, and I think I, from conversations with Europeans now, I think they very much understand that logic. But I fear that the incentives won't be there unless the United States huh, exhibits leadership, ironically, in order to reduce its own leadership in Europe. If the United States publicly says, we are going to make a transitional process, we're not going to leave Europe overnight but we will work with our allies over a number of years uh, while reinforcing the eastern flank of NATO, which I think is appropriate in the short term, we will transition to uh, a leading role for Europe in the defense of Europe. And I think that would be something that uh, many European countries at least would have to not nominally sign on to in this moment. Uh, and then perhaps we could actually make the transition that I think many of us understand needs to be made. So it's an opportunity there. And I just hope uh, that the Biden administration will uh, be willing to uh, take a little bit of political risk. I don't think it's actually that much, uh, but it's a little bit or it will will appear to be some political risk to people in the administration. Uh, And they are determined to act strategically with a view toward the future in the way that, as Ted says, uh, often hasn't happened in our foreign policy making.
0: Stephen Wertheim is a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Cato's Ted Galen Carpenter is author of several books on NATO. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.